Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Sandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Uh, this week on the show, we're going to take a deeper look into some important topics in biodiversity conservation, this time taking our eye towards South America and Colombia in particular. Our guest today is the perfect one to help lead this discussion. Her name is Laura Cor Laura Cor. Laura is a PhD candidate at King's College in London and the Royal Botanic Gardens Q, where she's finishing up her doctoral studies. Her research focuses on the conservation of useful plants in Colombia, species with reported human uses, ranging from everything from food and medicine to spiritual and cultural values. Following her bachelor's degree in biology and master's in environmental technology from Imperial College London, Laura directed her career to biodiversity conservation at the interface between social and ecological systems. She also brings um, to the table a lot of experience spanning NGOs, research organizations, and industry, where she's worked on projects in both the UK and Latin America. It's so great to have you on the show, Laura. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to have this conversation. Yeah. So why don't we just begin with some of the basics? Tell us a little bit about why it's important to include people and different knowledge systems in biodiversity conservation efforts. Okay, sure. Um, so I guess as we probably are all too aware, we're currently losing biodiversity at unprecedented rates across the world. And traditionally, conservation approaches have often tried to exclude humans. So it's been kind of seen as this battle between people versus nature. So if we think, for example, like national, um, some national parks where you know people are excluded in a lot of areas in the world, um, but more and more we've realized that actually we are, humans are part of nature and we are very intrinsically linked. And we've been in recent decades understanding more the importance of the human dimension of conservation and it also including communities in conservation efforts. So those have very ethical reasons, which are super important to understand, but it's also been repeatedly shown to result in more effective conservation outcomes by including people and also more and more recognizing the importance of indigenous and local communities in that and how they've acted as stewards um, for biodiversity in many regions across the world. And that is being more reflected in global conservation policy as well. Um, but yeah, still some way to go. So I think what's interesting about your approach is that you're really focusing on plants that local people consider to be useful or important to their daily lives. Maybe you can expand on that a bit. Like, what does that actually mean? What does that entail? Because I think in many of the kind of urban communities in the West, we don't necessarily feel that deep tie with nature and with specific plants. Can you paint us a picture of what, how, how it is when people do have these close ties? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess in terms of how it works to look at plants and uses and conservation, that can be approached in lots of different ways. So, you know, there are people who approach that from a more anthropological viewpoint, and it's very much, you know, working long term with local communities in a very set area. Um, for me, my background is more in biology. So even though now I do touch upon social sciences, my strengths, I realize, are still in kind of the larger scale and looking at that social ecological mix. So I think the approach that I've come from is this kind of slight oxymoron, where, as I mentioned, we are understanding more and more that it's important to include people. But at the same time, um, because biodiversity loss is at the global scale, there's a lot of policy which is still really pushing to conserve large areas of the globe for conservation. 
So a big question I've been really like dealing with is how do we tie these two scales together? And my approach has been through useful plants, um, which is of course really anthropocentric and it can be questioned. But I think what that really highlights is firstly, it recognizes how important plants are for people. Secondly, um, it really also is a way to bring people into the dialogue. So as you mentioned in, in a lot of areas around the world, um, wild resource use and wild plant use is still so important and so linked. For some communities, it's a day-to-day -day thing. Um, you know, that's on different scales. It's like really part of the identity and culture, especially in a lot of indigenous communities. In other areas, it might be something that's maybe more relied on in times of hardship. So it can be like famine foods, for example, or things that allow substitution when you're unable to go to market to get things. Um, but it's really recognizing that and bringing people into conversation to say, okay, what do they use in these areas? Um, are these plants being lost? And how can we have sustainable management and sustainable use? And like you mentioned, maybe in like the Western world, in the US and the UK, there's, you know, that link isn't there so much, um, but it's really an important livelihood for millions across the world. And yeah, I think I'd also love to say a bit more maybe later on about how that link is still important in, in our culture. Yeah, I know you've also written about that, for example, in the UK of, yeah. of plants in urban settings. Um, okay, so we're looking at useful plants and people's relationships to them. Can you tell us a bit more about, maybe give us some examples. If you are working in a local community in Colombia, how would you how would you rank importance of different plants? Are wild foods more important than wild medicines? Or are they on equal level? Or mm -hmm. are plants used for kind of cultural or religious purposes um, more or less important than others? And how does this kind of relative level of perception of importance influence local conservation initiatives? Okay, great question. <laughs> so I guess how in terms of like ranking and rating that really depends on what the objective is and the type of study so i think if you're taking like a more anthropological viewpoint and looking at really trying to document and preserve local knowledge um, it's very much down to that community to say how they use plants how they rate and rank them and it's that you know it will be very context specific um for me as i mentioned it's really trying to tie in together okay how do we bring these two quite different approaches of scientific like knowledge in conservation with the local knowledge. So I have applied um, something called the Economic Botany Data Collection Standard, like quite a mouthful, um, where there's this hierarchical like system of describing plant uses. So there's 10 high level categories which we've used, um, which as we mentioned earlier, like it includes human food, it includes medicine, it includes materials and fuel. And we've specifically in Colombia, we've been working, so I've been working as part of a wider project called Useful Plants and Fungi of Colombia. And we had three pilot study areas. So where we worked with communities in those three municipalities. And in each one, um, we're asking, we held workshops, we did ethnobotanical um, studies. So this is very much my colleagues as well. And you know, I was just a small part of this um, big project. And yeah. I think the bit which I find most interesting is these ethnobotanical field excursions, where it's very much the local people who are the guides. So does they will go around, will walk around in the forest, whatever habitat it is, with botanists and local people, and they will point out the plants that they use. 
whether it's for food, whether it's, whether it's for medicine or building materials or anything else. And we were documenting them both in terms of the local uses and names and also the um, more, sorry, the scientific classifications of them. But in terms of rank, we also then had workshops where we asked them to prioritize 10 species that they would like to bring forward as, you know, potential means for sustainable development. So looking towards maybe developing value chain networks, because um, in Colombia, it's very much, you know, we're looking at sustainable development and not just conservation. And so it's, again, very much down to the community in terms of what they prioritized and what they wanted to rank. And we did that based on like voting and like bringing to get, like, together the different knowledges and thoughts from people there. And yeah, there's a photo of two of our fantastic guides on the left um, and myself and Mateo, who's from, was working for the Humboldt Institute in Colombia at the time. So that's Ana Yudith in the middle next to me. <laughs> wow. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place. This is, for those of you that are listening um, to the audio version only, you can also go over to our YouTube channel and check out the video where we have some nice um, photos from some of uh, Laura's um, expeditions in the area. Um, so we're, you're ranking these by, by kind of rank level of importance. How does this all specifically tie into prioritization of species for conservation? Mm -hmm. So is this really what's guiding your team on saying, okay, everyone uses this plant X that's really important to their local diet, but seems to be at risk because of over harvesting in the wild. And we're going to focus on this plant. Is that kind of what you're getting at with your strategy? So at the more local level, that would be. Um, so actually, I've been, well, myself and colleagues, we've been applying something called the important plant areas approach. Okay. And that's actually a global approach to conservation. Um, so that's based on spatial prioritization, like something I mentioned earlier, but focus on plants. And I think something really interesting about IPAs, um, which is the important plant areas, is that they can be triggered by socially, economically, or culturally valuable plant species so useful plants and however my like the approach that it takes is based on three globally consistent criteria so it looks at um threatened species in terms of whether like species are known to be endangered critically endangered or vulnerable um and also it looks at species richness but the way that we've been applying it in colombia so far is specifically looking at areas which have threatened useful plants and high botanical richness of, again, useful plants. And we can talk about why we've taken that approach. So that's been like one part of my study. And another part has actually been then using the results from that kind of national level analyses and those kinds of like more scientific designations and risk assessments. We've been zoning in on these three local communities that we've been um, working with to actually ask them about which plants they think, like in terms of the top, like 10 prioritized species that they had, um, how they see those trends changing in terms of both use and abundance. So one part of my studies has actually been contrasting those different knowledge systems to see when we're applying these global um, conservation designations to areas, are we actually capturing what's happening in that very local context? So yeah, long, nice. long answer to your question. Long answer, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. So, okay, I, as, you're, as you're speaking about prioritization, um, of these regions, in my head, I was immediately thinking of something known as a global biodiversity hotspot. And global biodiversity, terrestrial biodiversity hotspots are kind of designated based on 
levels of endemism, the numbers of plants that are only found in that part of the world, and also the percentage of the of the land that's been kind of lost due to a number of things, climate change, you know, um, agricultural transition of landscapes, et cetera. So how does how does this new designation compare to like a global biodiversity, you know, hotspot, one of those? It sounds like you're you're throwing in that human element in a unique way. I want to dig into that a little bit more. Right, sure. So it reflects all of that. So it reflects the kind of idea of a hotspot. So like I said, we're looking at areas which are hotspots for useful plants. Um, so it's taking this kind of more traditional conservation biology approach, but really recognizing the human element of that. Um, and so the Important Plant Area Program was initially launched back in 2002 by an organization called Plant Life International and was originally um, applied in European countries and was actually taken more to tropical areas, um, kind of 2016, 2017, that started with the Tropical Important Plant Areas Program, which was launched by Q. And I think that's, at the same time, there was kind of an update to the criteria. And that's when socially um, useful plant species were included. And I think that really recognizes a bit about what we were talking be about before, that there is this additional importance of um, recognizing the social element in tropical areas and in developing countries, because we really need to tie in that kind of socio-ecological context and, you know, the real reality for people on the ground that just talking about conservation of species because they're threatened isn't necessarily enough. We have to think also about, okay, how, how do we bring people into that? How does it affect livelihoods and how can we tie those things in together to have sustainable development? Um, so yes, we're still having that kind of hotspot approach in terms of looking at richness and also looking at um, extinction risk assessments. But in Colombia, we've been applying it specifically to useful plants. And that's also partly because there are already so many useful plants and species that we know of in Colombia. So it's one of, Colombia actually has the second highest biodiversity of plants in the world. Um, and coupled with its cultural diversity, it's led to over 7,000 plant species with reported human uses. So, you know, only focusing on plants alone, we, useful plants alone, we've got so much data to deal with. Um, and that's really a hook that we can engage more people in, in terms of decision makers and local communities. Well, that, that leads into my next question. So as you gather these, you know, very um, important data sets that kind of rank prioritize um, species within these at-risk ecosystems, how, how can this information then be used, for example, um, by governments, by mm -hmm. NGOs? Like, how does that translate from this kind of, you know, basic field work where you're on the ground, really just gathering data, running lots of statistics, I'm assuming. Um, how do you how do you go from that to providing tools that others can use to, to enact change that would benefit the communities? Right. Um, so as part of the Useful Plants and Fungi of Columbia project, there's been like a whole host of outputs which are for kind of local communities, as well as the more kind of scientific side and research side. So that includes like kind of booklets about the 10 prioritized um, plant species in each region. So we're thinking also about kind of maintaining and passing down traditional ecological knowledge, as well as the conservation of the plant species in the ground too. So that's one element in terms of like conservation at the local level, in terms of the wider scale and looking at decision makers um, we're kind of just starting that process now. 
So recently published um, a paper showing our kind of preliminary important plant areas for useful plants in Colombia. And I think that's, you know, that was hard work, but I think what's going to be even harder is then, okay, how does this identification lead to conservation? And one thing about IPA is to say is that it, it doesn't give, you know, legal, like legislative powers. It's just indicative of, you know, what areas we think are important to conserve. So the way we've done it is to go through all of the areas which were triggered by these criteria to highlight top 10 priority sites. And we made sure to try and make those boundaries not just ecologically meaningful, but also kind of fit into local administrative boundaries so that we can provide the, we can then go to the local municipality, the local, you know, the mayor and the communities say, you have this incredible richness of useful species here. Um, and to try and gain your interest there and hopefully work together. I mean, I guess it's also recognizing that, you know, me and my supervisors, we work in research. So there's so much we want to do, but there's only so far that our expertise will take us. So it's really having fantastic local partners on the ground. So in those three areas, we were working with like NGOs or other organizations in each of those areas, which really gave us access to those communities. And it's really recognizing, you know, where, where we can champion what we have, but also allow other people to then bring in their expertise and their local knowledge to help bring that forward. It's amazing. So when you're thinking about these, these surveys and these priority areas, everything is focused on wild plants, correct? Or are you, or are you also including in cultivated plants, crops? Like I would imagine that crops also rank up pretty high in um, local people's estimation because it's a source of food and probably income. Yeah. How do those factor into this? Because that also, of course, plays a role in determining land use practices. Yeah, good question. And it's actually quite a tricky and blurred boundary and does lead to quite a lot of debates even within you know the work that we're doing. Um, so I guess in terms of linking back to how we categorize plant uses, um, one of the categories is kind of genetic resources. So that includes crop wild relatives. So that's definitely included in our list. In terms of species which are cultivated, I guess that could be also one of the outcomes of what we do. So we are highlighting species in each area, for example, that are being used, that are important for use, and in some cases are decreasing. So one part of that could be actually looking at, okay, how can we improve the sustainability of this? And one area might be cultivation, for example. So in some instances, yes, there's already cultivation going on, um, but we want it to be in a where possible, where it's not affect, you know, clearing land so that plants which are collected from the wild are also affected. Um, but in other instances, it might be okay if there's over harvesting. Is it possible to cultivate these plants on a small scale? And that's one part of the project which we haven't really got to, but could be a follow up. And I know colleagues have done that in other areas of the world um, in terms of forming nurseries. And so that, again, looks at both conservation and livelihoods. Nice. Well, I think what you're doing there is, is really exciting. The whole team's, you know, contributions and this, this, these new measures that are coming out, I'm sure will be useful not only in the fields of ethnobotany and economic botany, but also, as, as you were saying, in conservation biology. I love this idea of putting people in the center of this. And um, I think, as you said, historically, we've often thought about conservation initiatives where people don't exist in these quote unquote pristine environments. But, you know, as, as ethnobotanists, I think we both know that humans have, you know, engineered ecosystems as long as we've walked this earth. So um, they are all, they've always been a part of the ecosystem. And that's, that's important. 
Well, speaking of different ecosystems, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your work in urban um, ecosystems and the urban environments. I know you've written about um, the role of urban plants um, and people's relationships to them. So maybe you can give us a little teaser um, on that work. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, obviously, so I'm based in London. That's where I've lived for quite a lot of years, probably most of my life now. Um, but my research is based in Colombia. So I guess I was finding a way, especially during, you know, COVID and being closer to home a lot of the time, uh, a way to make my research feel more relevant to my surroundings around me. So I was partly like, okay, I wonder what kind of useful plants are growing in and around me. And also trying to think about how can this kind of link to conservation um, and that kind of thing. So I went about like looking at this in terms of urban ecosystems. And also my past job included a lot of field work actually in and around London, as well as other parts of the UK. So I'm you know really familiar with the plant species here. Um, so I was thinking about how I can actually even contextualize this. And the way I went about it is that, so at the moment we've got this issue in the UK and a lot of the world of like plant awareness disparity or plant blindness, um, where many people aren't really thinking or even noticing plants, um, let alone thinking about them in terms of conservation. And we're also in urban areas, there's something called the pigeon paradox, which is basically there's more and more people um, living in urban areas. At the same time, we know that to motivate conservation and brands for action, we need to, like people are often more likely to do that if they have direct experiences of nature. So that leads to this kind of paradox of actually, how do we do that? How do we have this greater experience of nature within this urban context to have conservation? And so my hook there was useful plant species, because um, I think it's a one way just to make nature feel more relevant to people. So I did a bit of an analysis in terms of looking at um, plant records across London, and matching that up with the world checklist of useful plants, which is um, a kind of Q database and found that there's over 900 species recorded across London with documented 900. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so these might not be uses that are, you know, local to London or local to- Yeah, Britain, but somewhere but in the world, the world. Yeah. 900 species. I mean, I'm kind of in a way surprised there's even 900 species in the city. <laughs> That's, that's there amazing. you go. Um, and yeah, and it's not really me saying, okay, guys, we need to go out and forage and use these plants. That's not it at all. I think it's just raising this awareness of actually there is so much folklore or use or like identity related to these plants. And I think another element of that is also that within conservation, um, BAME communities, so Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities are very underrepresented. And one of the, re there's many reasons to that is very multifaceted, but one reason is also that has been attributed to that in the UK is that um, often communities from that background live in inner city urban areas without that connection to green spaces and to nature. Um, but for me, I know that actually studying useful plants has been a way to link to my like ethnic background, so I'm a mixed race and with very different kind of plant uses from on both sides. And I've always found it interesting to learn more about that. And I think like this is a way just to bring the cultural link as well as the biodiversity link together. Yeah, I love that. It's all about getting people connected to the things that they see every day, but perhaps mm -hmm. don't have any relationship with. Um, yeah, I mean, I think even, you know, yesterday I was bicycling to work um, 
which I try to do more and more with a little bit of exercise. I don't do it all, yeah. every day. But as I'm bicycling along, it's kind of fun because once you do get to know the plants in your in your environment, you know, it's like you're cycling by the tulip poplar, like, hey, there's a canoe tree and you're going by and there's some other, you know, herbs. Oh, that makes a great tea, a great herbal tea. Or there's the blackberry bush, you know, you need to remember where that one's at to come back and forage for some berries in the future. Yeah. You know, so it's just, I think it, it opens up a whole new way to think about um, and feel like you belong in an environment. So I, I love that you raised awareness and about that locally. I think just really briefly linked to that, even when I'm with friends and family, right, going for a walk, you're kind of zone out if I just talk about the names of plants. But if I start talking about their uses or traditions, there's so much more interest. Yeah. Um, I think it's just really something to make, to spark people's imagination or interest in. Absolutely. To make it more relevant. So everything's not just a sea of green um, in this blanket. So I guess this, this, this part of the conversation brings me to a bigger question. We have a lot of students or, or you know, will would be students in the future that are applying to graduate programs across the mm -hmm. globe that are in our audience. And I always like to ask my guests, especially those that are kind of just really getting their careers launched, like what brought you to this field and where do you where do you think you're gonna go? Those are two really big questions. I have a habit yeah. <laughs> I'll try to answer them. <laughs> I guess for me, like unlike many of my peers in conservation ecology, I didn't grew up with much exposure to nature and outdoors. Um, so I'm the only one in my family who's actually been interested in science and maths. And, um, you know, I first grew up in Singapore and both my parents are from quite urban environments. But for whatever reason, I decided to study biology at university. I mean, it was kind of a last minute decision. <laughs> but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And during my first year of undergrad, I just like, even within the field of bi biology, I wasn't actually sure where I wanted to go with it. But I sent out kind of an email to lots of my professors in my first year, just asking if anyone had any ex like work experience I could do over summer. And the only one who came back with a bit of funding um, was a, my professor called Professor Simon Leather, who sadly passed away last year. But I really attribute like this spark in ecology um, to him. So I just spent that summer helping him out on this long term study of aphids and insects growing on trees in um, Seward Park, which is Imperial College's kind of ecology campus outside of London. And that's when I just realized like, wow, you can, fieldwork is great. And like, I really enjoy being outdoors and learning about the natural world and just one thing led to another. So I think after that, I picked all the ecology and conservation models that I could, ended up doing like a year in industry. So a placement year outside of my undergraduate study, which again, focused on insects and ecosystem services on farmland. And so just, I was within this kind of entomology sphere for quite a few years. Um, but increasingly with, I think, each experience, realizing kind of that human element of conservation, um, firstly, kind of within agricultural environments in that sense. And straight after my undergrad, I had this incredible experience of going as um, an invertebrate scientist to help out on a long-term study in Honduras, which was my first experience of like working directly in Latin America. And that's where that people side really kind of came through for me. So I directed my like master's project to kind of learn about social sciences a bit more. Um, and actually it wasn't, I didn't actually get into plants until my last job, which was an ecological consultancy where, you know, I was doing lots of different surveys to inform like planning decisions 
which were looking at protected mammals and um, as well as habitats and plants. And that's where I realized, like, actually, I really enjoy learning about plants, but many of my colleagues don't. So it was like kind of that gap in that niche. Um, so I just honed in on that. And when I decided to go do PhD and got some funding, this project on useful plants and fungi in Colombia really brought together so many of my passions. So it was my new kind of found love for plants, um, that human side of plant uses, you know, Latin America where I'd had like really interesting fieldwork experience before and like really enjoyed the area. And of course, Colombia is, you know, so rich in biodiversity that I think it will be many um, ecologists and bi biologists dream to work there. Uh, so yeah, that's how I came to this. Um, and in terms of where I'm going next, that's probably a more tough question. Um, <laughs> I think um, it's, I think it's, well, before we go on to what went next is like, I think it's, it says something about the value of getting experience in different sectors and the value of getting involved in different internships mm -hmm. that give you those hands-on opportunities. I think, I just think that there's so much you can learn from those types of experiences um, that take what you can do in the classroom, like just so much further. So I just wanted to make a note of that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I think it's just like, saying yes to opportunities that come your way if they spark a little bit of interest and then you never know where it can lead you like I think one thing yeah. always leads to another and you don't see where the direction might be um which I guess is where I am now um, but obviously something I've been thinking about because I'm now in my final few months of PhD and essentially definitely want to stay within biodiversity conservation ideally plants ideally you know that interface um, and honestly, I actually started my PhD not really thinking I'd stay in academia, but I've been loving it. So we'll, yeah, we'll be hoping to direct that towards the research role. Um, That's great. That's great. Well, um, Laura, where can we send our listeners to learn more about your research? Um, do we have a, a website where they can find all of your research articles? Um, so very handily, a QR code has just popped up um, on the screen if you are watching on YouTube. Um, so that goes directly to my Google Scholar page. So you can find um, all my recent articles there. And most recently we published about the important plant areas for useful plants in Colombia, which I've spoken about. Um, so please check that out. Also, you can find me on Twitter at Laura B. Kaur, so that's K-O-R, um, where, yeah, I, I try to share <laughs> some of my research and like outreach that I do as well through blogs and podcasts such as this. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure. Thanks, Cassie. Like, really appreciate being invited to it. I love your podcast. Like, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast. For the few curious, we recorded for you today on Restream. You can find this and all of our other episodes at our website. That's foodiepharmacology.com. You can also um, subscribe to the show um, anywhere that you stream podcasts. So if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also find some um, fun details on the episodes at my newsletter, which is at Nature's Pharmacy on Substack. And then we have the full video version of this um, on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. All these links and notes will be added to the show notes for the um, for the episodes. You can find them there. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment for really helping us put on a great show for you each and every week. All right, that's all that we have for you today. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.